Yes, that's my cue. <laughs> if you haven't been able to tell, I'm the new guy around here. <laughs> Still getting my feet under me. But um, I have no other words to begin with than by saying thank you. <laughs> thank you beyond what I can put into the clearest of communication on a Sunday morning. Uh, thank you for the cards, the texts, the messages, the meals, the letters. I can't tell you how many days in Philadelphia. It would, it would be like day after day our mails accumulating, and 90% of it had a Carterville or Marion or Heron address. All your well wishes were so appreciated. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Jen, Josiah, and Ezra are so, so happy to finally be with you all. And we couldn't be more happy than to be celebrating this worship service with you all. So this morning, it's not about me. It's not about Brother Ralph. It's about Jesus. The one who leads the church. The one who is head over his body, the church. So what we are going to do now is we are going to continue right where we left off last week. In Colossians chapter 1, looking through the windshield of scripture into our future as we remember what the local church, every gospel-preaching local church is meant to be like and do. And the first thing we see is that the true leader of the local church is Jesus himself. So if you have your Bibles, please pull those out, either on your phone or the hard copies in front of you. Open up your Bible to Colossians 1. I want you to see that these are not merely my words. You don't need my words. (laughs) You need the word of God, what Isaiah 55 calls the words that help our souls live. So open up, follow along with me, and as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for our time in the scripture. Well, Father, we we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering with your people. We thank you so much for the privilege of making much of your name through faith in your son's work on our behalf. Lord, at this moment, we ask that you would, by the power of your spirit, speak to us, that you would draw those who have yet to come to you Uh, unto you and to salvation. You would edify our hearts, that you would encourage us, and that your words would go forward and my words would fall to the floor. It's in your son's name we ask all these things. Amen. All right, a little question for you all. What is your favorite song? What is your favorite song of all time? Like, when I ask that question, I know I run the risk of losing many of you. The familiar chorus will come to mind right away. Maybe it's George Strait. Tim McGraw. I see some smiles. We're laughing because it's true. Johnny Cash. Heaven forbid, Taylor Swift. Anyone? We'll pray after the service. But I ask this question because the text that we're reading today, verse 15 to 20 in Colossians chapter 1, is actually a song. See, music is quite sticky, isn't it? It has the potential to quickly and effectively communicate a message in a chorus, and that chorus gets stuck down deep in us. We find ourselves humming it when we don't want to. Our spouse has to tell us to stop singing because they're tired of hearing the song for a thousand and one times. Music is sticky. And so it's no accident that the Apostle Paul, when writing to the church in Colossae, uses a song to help a certain big idea get stuck deep down into the hearts and the minds of the church there in Colossae. And that chorus he wants to reverberate in their hearts and their minds is found in verse 18. Look, look with me to verse 18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Our big idea this morning is Jesus leads the church. Jesus leads this in every gospel-preaching church. See, Paul wrote this letter, the letter of, to the church in Colossae, in a context that is somewhat similar to ours. See, the church in Colossae was relatively young, 
founded by a convert named Epaphras, they were determining kind of a transition point, what kind of theological truths, what sort of practical realities they were going to cling tightly to. Paul knew they were making decisions, and so he reveals his deep desire for this church in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, where he says, my desire is that you'd be rooted, established, and built up in the faith in Jesus. Rooted, established, built up in Jesus. Amen? That is my desire for here, for you, at Christian Covenant Fellowship. And I find it both an incredible joy and a humbling responsibility to step into a position in which I know Brother, Brother Ralph has so sternly set the course of this ship in that direction that his desire has been to see you rooted, established, built up in Jesus. And now I am seeking to serve in the same capacity as Ralph selflessly, faithfully, humbly, sacrificially poured out his life for your, your spiritual emotional, physical good, I want to see you rooted, established, built up in Jesus. See, the voice in the pulpit might be different, but the leader of the church hasn't changed. Amen. From the very first Sunday and the very first sermon, I want you to hear me loud and clear. I am always and only committed to preaching and teaching Jesus Christ who lived, died, and was resurrected on behalf of sinners to offer salvation to us who can't earn it and don't deserve it, for us who are meant to know God and enjoy Him forever. This is the one who leads the church. And so this morning, we look at Colossians 1, verse 15 to 23, to see why should we follow Jesus? Why should we follow Him? And then how do we follow? as a church and as individuals. Why do we follow him and how should we follow him? So if you have your Bibles, open up. We're going to start in verse 15 to 17. Why should we follow Jesus? He's the creator. He's the one who made all things. Follow along with me. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the creator. Verse 15 says he is the image of the invisible God. An image is something that tells us something about the one it represents. It points to, I have two young children. In part, they bear my image. In part, they bear my wife's image. As you notice, their 90th percentile height, they bear much more of Jen's image than my image, for better, not for worse. And I'm so thankful for that. But as our children only partially bear our image, Jesus is different. He doesn't just partially bear God's image. He is fully divine with the Father, with the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 1 says he's the full radiance the full radiance display of the glory of God. And as such, it makes sense that he would be the creator. See, the end of verse 15 says, he is the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn of all creation. We hear firstborn, we think chronology, like first in line. But scripture here is saying firstborn in the sense of superiority. Just like in Psalm 89, King David is called the firstborn king of Israel. It's not because he was first in line. It's because he was most important. Jesus as firstborn of all creation means he is the creator, not a creation. He speaks collectively with the Father and the Holy Spirit back in Genesis 1.26 and says, let us make man in our image. Jesus 
is our creator, and his list of creative accomplishments is quite impressive. Let's turn to verse 16. For by him all things were made, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were made through him and for him. All things, heaven, earth, gravity, the sun, the moon, the stars, the very hearts that are beating in our chests. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. This is language of power. The office of thrones, the highest office you can imagine, like the president, all the way down to authorities, like county council, everything below, above, and in between. The one who is powerful enough to create all of these things is our creator. And did you catch the end of verse 16? Not only were all things made through him, but all things were made for him. For him. God doesn't create me. He didn't create you. He didn't create this church for its preferences, for its comfort, just to look in the mirror and feel good about ourselves. God made us in all things for his glory. Creation most glorifies their creator as they point up to him. Very practically, that means your time, your money, your energy, your efforts, this church, Christian Covenant Fellowship, we collectively exist for the glorification of our Creator. No preferences, no agendas will trump the glorification of our Creator at Christian Covenant Fellowship. That also means Monday to Saturday, our Creator wants to be glorified in our vocations. When we go to work, we see those appointments Those people, those places. When we go to school, we see those assignments, those teammates, those friends. When we stay at home to take care of the children, we see those children, those friends that we make. We see them all as sovereign appointments. God has placed us there to participate in the glorification of him. The question is, how will you participate in the glorification of your creator, both at this church and in your Monday to Saturday living? And thankfully... The one who made all things is also the one who upholds all things. Our creator is our sustainer. Let's go to verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 says Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. How humbling is that for some of us? The creator is the sustainer. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's humbling for us who would think that if we don't check our emails at 5 a.m., 1 p.m., 5 p.m., the world's not going to go around. It's relieving for us who are awash in a sea of anxiety, to-do lists ever reverberating in the back of our minds, thinking, I have a thousand and one things to do. I can't think about anything else. Heck, if I'm going to glorify God in my life, i got things to do. The creator is the sustainer. We follow him because he created us, And he upholds everything. Let's make this practical. Have you ever made something? Like, have you ever created something in some capacity? See, we were made by the creator in his image. We have creative potential. Maybe you have written a song, started a business. Maybe you have built a house or a piece of machinery at work. Or maybe you're like me, and the closest thing to creating you can do involves duct tape and prayer. As you put the (laughs) side mirror back on that car. Regardless, as creator in some small capacity, you have a unique relationship with your creation, right? You probably love that house, that table, that business more than anyone else. 
You know exactly how it's meant to work, and you have a very specific plan in mind for its future. How much more do you think our heavenly, eternal creator knows us, hears us, loves us, cares about us through faith in Jesus? And how much more do you think he has a very specific, intentional plan for our, perp- for our future? And see, what we're going to find out in verse 18 to 20 is that the plan our creator has is reconciliation. See, creation itself has been separated from God. It needs reconciliation. And the shift from creation to reconciliation runs straight through the church, as we're going to see in verse 18. So we follow Jesus because he's the creator. And second, we follow Jesus because he is the reconciler. Turn with me to verse 18. He, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, most important, put upon the highest stage. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, making peace, making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace is such a funny word, isn't it? So many things come to mind as we hear the word peace. Think about Thanksgiving coming up in a few weeks. I know for some of us that induces panic. (laughs) I got like 10 pounds of food to make. And for some of us it induces excitement. I got like eight hours of football to watch. (laughs) But forget about the food and the football for a minute. Think about the guest list. Who's coming to your house? Seriously, friends, family, neighbors, colleagues. But who's not coming? (laughs) Who are the people that you would invite but might regretfully decline because they don't see eye to eye with you? Who are the people that you might never even consider inviting because they rub you the wrong way? You just can't stand to be around them. They've said or done something to you that seems unforgivable. See, you and I know the reality of being under a cursed creation, the curse of sin as it bears itself out in creation. We know there is suffering in this world And one chief example is our broken horizontal relationships. See, Genesis 1 and 2 says, God made us and all things good. Our vertical relationship with him was one of perfect union. Our horizontal relationships with each other were one of perfect loving communion. But then Genesis 3 happens. Bad news follows the good news. (laughs) Our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, they eat of the fruit. They doubt God's character. They disobey his commands. They forfeit their seat at the table of fellowship with God. And us, by nature and by choice, we now inherit their sinful disposition and the penalty of sin itself. We've been exiled from the garden and kicked out from the table. We need a reconciler. We need someone to make peace between us and God and us and one another. And that's exactly what Paul says Jesus is. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased, pleased to dwell. The work of reconciliation was pleasing to God. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It's shocking to think that God was pleased to send his son away from eternal comfort and divine pleasure to enter into our sin and suffering, but it was pleasing to him. It's shocking to think that even in our rebellion, our enmity against God. God was pleased to come to us to close the relational gap that exists between us and him because of our sin. God was pleased to dwell in the fullness of Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things. 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, try as we might, we can't make peace with God. Peace with God requires a perfect, law-fulfilling, sinless life be lived. The kind of life that I'll never live, you'll never live, no human will ever nor has ever lived. Only the life that Jesus has lived, and he offers it in our place. Peace with God requires a very holy, divine, perfect sacrifice be paid to fully absorb the wrath of God against sin. The kind of sacrifice I can't offer, you can't offer, no one else can offer except the very holy, righteous one, God in the flesh, Jesus himself. See, peace with God was not made by us paying a certain cost. Peace with God comes through faith in his perfect life, his sacrificial death. The righteous one dies for us, the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. The reconciliation we need is offered through the reconciler himself. And he paid the highest price to reconcile us to to his father. Eight years ago, I went to go shopping for an engagement ring. I wanted to get married to Jen. And I was broker than broke. (laughs) I don't even know I had a bank account, honestly. I could have just managed it all out of my wallet. (laughs) Working two two part-time jobs, living at home. I didn't have any money. And so I did what a broker than broke guy does when he wants an engagement ring, wants to get married. You shop around a lot. You try to wheel and deal until you come to grips with the reality that uh, a worthy, nice diamond ain't cheap and ain't no one going to sell it to you for cheap. (laughs) So you pony up the money and you pay it because you know that that is the entrance, the open door to the relationship that you so long for, that you so desire. And over time, my heart went from begrudging to willing to even pleased (laughs) to write that check. It took some time. (laughs) Like I said, it wasn't the first shop I walked into. But even more than any high price that we will ever pay for an earthly possession, all this money is God's anyways, even more than any price we will ever pay, have you considered the eternal price that God was willing to pay to bring sinners to peaceful reconciliation with him? Listen to verse 20 again. He made peace by the blood of his cross. The price of your peace with God The price of my peace with God was the blood of his cross. Our creator died for creation. Our sustainer died for sinners. It was his blood, his death, his cross, our peace. His blood, his death, his cross, our peace. We follow him because he is the reconciler, the one who makes peace by the blood of his cross. But surely you're thinking, How is there peace in a dead dead Savior? Where is peace in death? You might be just checking Christianity out for the first time today. Maybe you're visiting. Why in the world would these people all commit to following their lives if their hope is dead? Well, verse 18 says we don't have a dead hope. Go back to verse 18. Jesus is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything, He might be preeminent. Something new happened after that perfect life, after that sacrificial death, a victorious resurrection. Our one reconciler is preeminent, most important in church, because he is the resurrected king. Sin, Satan, death had no hold on him. 
See, after three days of being in the tomb, Jesus rose, death died, new life was offered to all who will now be adopted into his lineage by faith. See, Jesus is the firstborn. We think of firstborns as like the ones who ensure the passing on of a family name. Like, I know there's going to be another Parker because I have a son, Josiah, whose last name is Parker. There will be at least one more generation. Jesus, as the firstborn, promises to give the name of resurrected, the name of holy, made right with God, peaceful, peacefully restored into right relationship to all who are adopted into his family by faith in his work. He is our reconciler. He is worth following because only through him do we have the peace we so long for. So let's remember this Thanksgiving. Back in Genesis 3, our seat at the table was lost. When we ate, Adam and Eve, our ancestors, ate of that fruit, they were kicked out of the garden, cast away from the table. But then Jesus comes to swallow up, eat every ounce of God's anger, his just wrath against sin, so that by faith in him, we are invited back to the table, the the Revelation 19 table, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all of God's people will feast upon God's glory with his people forever. If you have received this vertical peace, this eternal peace, you know what that makes you, according to 2 Corinthians 5? It makes you an ambassador of reconciliation. Someone who bends the vertical peace they've received with God out horizontally into the relationships that now mark our broken world. That means we can forgive before we are even forgiven. We can love before we're loved. We can speak well love even if spoken not so well of by bosses, colleagues, neighbors. We can pursue reconciliation because we have been vertically reconciled to the one who made us. Isn't he worth following? We follow Jesus because he is the creator and because he is the reconciler. And now Paul tells us that there's only really two appropriate ways to follow him in the church. We first believe in him as Savior and trust him as Lord. We believe in him as Savior and we trust him as Lord. Let's conclude, begin to conclude. No preacher ever means it when he says we're going to conclude. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) We will begin to work our way towards a conclusion. As we turn to verse 21 and 20, 22 and 23, we follow Jesus by believing in him as Savior. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It's a good thing to celebrate our Creator and our Reconciler. But the only thing that makes Him worth celebrating is if we first realize our need for salvation. Is if we first realize our contribution to, contribution to salvation wasn't all that great. <laughs> Look at verse 21. Paul wants us to celebrate after first tasting the bitterness of our sin that required saving from it. Verse 21. And you. Wow. Let's get personal, won't we? See, verse 15 to 20 sounded nice in general. I can kind of listen but not put my place in there, my name in there. Verse 21 leaves us no option. And you. He, Paul wants us to take that pronoun out. Put your name in there. And Jameson. You once were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Have you come to grips with the reality that 
you were separated from me in your sin. Your previous birth, nature, and choice were to be separated. The original language makes it more sound like an enemy of God. It's not like we just need a little cleaning up. But in all reality, we were the ones who put God's gifts and our desires at the center of our hearts, pushed God to the periphery, and tried to say, no thanks. I'd rather try to be God instead of trust God. I'd I'd rather try to find life, joy, and peace apart from God instead of find it in him alone. This is called idolatry. It is the sin which rightly deserves God's wrath. Our contribution to salvation is presenting nothing but need, nothing but deep, deep need for forgiveness, the kind of grace that is unmerited, unearned, and undeserved. It's a wonderful song we just heard. Is See, grace is purely a gift, isn't it? Anyone who's ever received a wonderful gift at Christmas knows it is just a graceful act, a demonstration of love from someone else. Anyone who's ever been around a two-year-old knows it requires a lot of grace to keep the house moving forward. I love my son, my two-year-old son and my newborn son. I love my two-year-old son. I have so many wonderful moments with him. We've gone hiking. We've gone to Taco Bell. We've had, don't tell mommy, he had donuts at Rise Above yesterday. I love him, but there are difficult moments, even with the people we love most, aren't there? Josiah is prone to throw his food on the floor yell at me, and disobey repeatedly. He needs my love, instruction, correction. He also needs my grace. You see, in his disobedience, there seems to be this opposition towards me, and it makes me feel like there's a distance between us. And unless I am willing to close that gap by gracefully forgiving, loving, instructing, and then restoring our relationship to Taco Bell visits and hikes, he might doubt my love for him. God has given us grace that we don't earn, that we can't deserve. And he's done so by moving towards us in the fullness of humanity and deity in Jesus Christ. He gives us the gift that we can't earn, we can't deserve, the reconciliation, the forgiveness of sin that we long for, as verse 22 says. Verse 22, here's the gift of grace God gives us. He has now reconciled. He makes right relationship possible. He has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You were opposed, but he reconciled. Have you let that sink in? You were opposed to God. I was opposed to God, but he reconciled. How did he do this? Well, it says in verse 22, in the body of Jesus by his death, nail-pierced hands and feet, a bloody brow of, of thorns around his head, Calvary was agonizing for him, but liberating for us. Calvary was agonizing for our reconciling Savior, but liberating for us who would place all of our faith in him. And he did it because it's something we needed. He did it to present us holy, blameless, above reproach before him. See, in our natural state, our sinful disposition, we can't be in the presence of God. God is perfectly holy and righteous. We need to be made holy and righteous And that's what Jesus imputes to us. He credits it to our account. The only righteous one did suffer for us, the unrighteous ones, to bring us to God. And now he calls us righteous ones. He gives us a new nature because we're new creatures. And so if we've been made holy, it only makes sense that we pursue holiness as a church, doesn't it? To live into the reality of our new identity in Christ. But remember, grace is a gift you don't earn, 
you don't deserve, but it has to be received. See, grace is a work of God for sure, but it's our faith that receives this work of God. See, our reconciler, our creator, Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, I have not come to call the righteous. I haven't come to announce good news to those who think they're pretty good, just need a little cleaning up. I haven't come to put band-aids on bullet holes, spiritually speaking. He says, I've come to call sinners to repentance. I've come to call sinners to repentance. I've come to announce good news to those who first taste the bitterness of their sin. To those who first realized they were opposed to, separated from, enemies of God, hostile in mind, doing the evilest of deeds, worshiping something else. And he offers us new life via repentance. Turning away, not from an emotional state, but turning away from trust in ourselves, turning towards trust in his work on our behalf. See, the only way that Jesus is your creator, your reconciler, and the only way that you can follow him is by believing in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his victorious resurrection in your place, on your behalf, to make you a firstborn, adopted son of his. So the question for you is, if you've yet to give God your sin by believing in Jesus, don't delay. Will you give him your sin? Will you receive his forgiveness, be adopted into his family by faith in his work? And if you have done that, then the question is, how do we keep following him? Well, the Apostle Paul concludes, begins to conclude, in verse 23, by telling us, continue in the faith. Continue in the faith. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We believe in Jesus as Savior, and we trust him as Lord in all of life. We trust him for our salvation, and then we cling to him in every decision we make in the future. See, Paul is telling us, kind of like massive oak trees, are, they have these roots that go so deep down into the soil that no matter what sort of storms, floods, chaos, hurricanes will come their way, oak trees will like grow up taller than any other tree, and it takes the most to knock them over. They are stable, steadfast, unshifting from their anchored roots in, in the soil. I better stop because I'm about to butcher that illustration so bad. <laughs> Paul is saying... We must have our roots of hope anchored deep down into the gospel if we are ever going to continue in the faith despite living in a world full of sin, sorrow, and suffering. Only when the roots of our hope are anchored in Jesus Christ himself will we be able to face and confront the suffering we are faced with in this world. Only when our roots of hope are sunk deep down into Jesus will the trivial pursuits of this life in this world, such as money, recreation, whatever, you fill in the blank for yourself. Those things will fall to the wayside and our true joy will be knowing and delighting in Jesus himself. Only when our roots are sunk deep down into Jesus will we continue stable, steadfast, unshifting from the hope of the gospel. So what does that look like? Like, how do we actually do that? Many ways. I think two, as I've been praying for this church and praying for myself, I think two ones that the Lord has put on my heart is we must be people of the word and people with each other in the church. We must be people of the word, people who have this word from God to us, that we long to listen to him speak to us, that we need to hear his words day in, day out, so that our souls would live. This word is inspired. It's breathed out by God. It's inerrant. It is perfect. 
It trains us in righteousness. When we store it up in our hearts, it turns us away from sinful dispositions. We must be people of the word, people who not only go to it individually, but speak it to one another. It's so easy to talk about a lot of things, isn't it? We should have verses on our mind to encourage, equip one another with. Prayers from Scripture we pray for and with each other. And we do so as people in the church. Yes, we are people of the word, but to be stable and steadfast in the gospel, we must be people with the church. Christian Covenant Fellowship is not a club. It's not a hobby. It's not even an event to attend on Sunday morning. This is what verse 18 says is the body of Jesus Christ that he heads. This is not a club. This is a redeemed family to participate in. See, Jesus died to abolish the dividing wall of hostility vertically between us and God and us and one another. He died to save us from our sin and then he puts us in community. He calls us citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Look to your left, look to your right. That is your brother and your sister in Christ if they believe in Jesus alone for their salvation. Your brother and your sister in Christ, regardless of what they look like, of how much money they make, of their life status, the color of their skin, their interests, brother and sister in Christ. The blood of Calvary trumps the blood of biology in the house of God. The blood of Calvary will trump the blood of biology in this and every house of God. And so what do we do? We live in light of that. We care for each other. We enter into the sufferings. We correct and rebuke when we see sinful habits taking over our hearts. We are the first to repent, first to stop spitting up front. (laughs) And we are the ones who encourage each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing we have the kind of bond that nothing can break, nothing can shake. We share an unshakable hope in the gospel so we can be stable and steadfast together. Jesus is indeed a powerful creator. He is indeed a gracious reconciler. He is worthy of being followed as you believe in him as Savior and trust him as Lord. And so my question for you is, will you follow Jesus with me? Will you follow Jesus with me? See, I am not the leader of this church. I am a servant, a shepherd, seeking to care for his flock as I rightly apply and administer his word, but we follow the head of the church, Jesus himself. Will you follow Jesus with me? Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a gift that we even get to call you Father. Lord, you are the one who spoke eternity into existence. You are the one who sent your Son and the fullness of deity and humanity, you are pleased to move towards us, even though we are in enmity with you, in opposition to you. You showed your love for us, and that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, I pray that this would be a people, that I would be a person, that we would be a family who lets our sin taste bitter so that your grace would taste sweet, that we would rest and the assurance of salvation through faith in Jesus, and that we would seek to follow him and make much of your name in and through this church forever. We ask that you would do this and more than we could ask or imagine by the power of your spirit enabling your people to do your purposes. So it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as a new guy, I don't know what happens next. (laughs) If you want a benediction...
Thank you very much for coming. <laughs> it has been a joy to see many of you, and I hope to get to speak with many of you on the way out. Um, Jen and I will probably be somewhere around, and we'd love to meet you and say hi. Uh, you are dismissed. <laughs>